ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Creating Structure podcast number 11. We are very pleased this week to be discussing building envelope consulting and all the things surrounding that topic. With me are my guests, Mark Coolis, Senior Design Consultant with Wheaton Sprague, Paul Greasy, Senior Design Consultant with Wheaton Sprague. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to have you guys. Uh, Mark, why don't you uh, give us a, a short background on who you are, what, what your background is, how you got this job, <laughs> how you got to this space. And uh, Paul, then you can do the same. You know, where'd you go to <laughs> training, you know, et cetera. Just give us a little background. Sure. Well, I, I went to school for mechanical engineering, but uh, my first job I got, I, I worked, I went to work for the, uh, one of the five companies in the, in the country, in the United States, this is 39 years ago. It'll be 40 years in May. Uh, so one of the five co companies in the country that did high rise facades and, um, that was prior to my stint at PPG with you, John. But um, in any event, it's I've been in the cladding industry that long. Uh, so I've used a lot of things I learned in school, but I've learned most of what I've learned after school, uh, working day to day, uh, working with people, uh, listening to what other people say. I mean, I learned a lot from uh, people in other walks of life, uh, architects and otherwise, because they know things I don't. So, you know, it's, it's great to share and you, you learn a lot. But over over the the thirty nine plus years, um, it's it's all been in cladding, and all the, the many things that have changed in the cladding industry over those roughly forty years, um, and so um, that's that's really where most of my knowledge has come from. Though is the continued research that I do, uh, you know, each year I do research, uh, and and then uh, working with all these different projects, um, and. You learn a lot, you know, by doing that. Everybody does, I guess, in every walk of life. But that's that's pretty much where I've got my background and experience is by hands-on experience in working in, you know, cladding for buildings. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, before I go to Paul, you know, somebody said the other day that, you know, the, the new normal in professional life is that learning doesn't end after school. You got to be committed to lifelong learning and relearning. And I think that's always been the case in our business right from the start. It was never a old normal and a new normal. It's always been, you got to keep learning and learning and learning and continually relearning. Do you think that's a fair statement? I think it's a very fair statement, John. I think it's true. Uh, it's absolutely true. And, you know, I think, that, and, and you'll find that there, there are small pockets of folks out there that, that don't go that route and then they get left in the dust. They, you know, they're, they're stuck in yesterday's technology yeah, um, the, and, and that's so part of that is staying current and it's such a dynamic industry that we're in uh, all the all the many changes over the years that it seems like uh, it, it's almost exponential now how fast things change now yeah so it's, it's even more so important i think and then we're learning through the sciences we're learning things that we didn't know before um, so it's not just product evolution it's things that we learn from the scientific community and uh, so, yeah, you're absolutely right, though. We have to be able to do that or we aren't going to be able to provide value. Well said. Paul, what's your background? Where'd you go to school? How'd you get into this situation as a consultant to the cladding industry? And um, just give us kind of a, a brief background for you. Sure. 
Sure, John, as opposed to Mark, my path into this work has been more circuitous with, um, I also have a degree in mechanical engineering and uh, I started out in school studying industrial engineering and uh, I did a co-op position with that in a toilet factory. And then <laughs> I got into uh, workplace design and I, I liked the uh, design and uh, facility engineering part. So I steered towards facility engineering and, and that spanned, uh, I worked in the automotive industry, um, which has the cyclical. So, uh, from there I've moved into aerospace components and, uh, then, uh, eventually into construction, general contracting and design build contracting and, uh, did that for a number of years, uh, where developed uh, business parks and did Butler buildings and other stick built buildings. And uh, then from there um, moved into envelope consulting, envelope engineering, envelope, envelope consulting, and uh, have been in there in this field for uh, about 15 years. Great. Uh, interestingly, Mick Patterson, one of our prior guests, he he started in architecture but wound up with a degree in industrial design. You started in industrial engineering and went to mechanical, you said, right? Yes, it, industrial engineering in the aspect of work measurement and, and uh, some of those uh, more managerial aspects of engineering and, and uh, statistics. Yeah, you know, I got to say, I don't... I think that industrial design, industrial engineering, I don't meet many of them, but it plays quite well in the curtain wall and facade business, just as architectural engineering does. Certain mechanical and civil and others, but I think it's an underrated, understated uh, background. Um, so, okay, so you guys both have a, a mechanical engineering background, nature, and then experience in facade, in building envelope consulting, Maybe this is too broad of a question, but some of our audience will be intimate with this and some won't. But what's the real value of a building envelope consultant to a project? And what type of project really should have a building envelope consultant involved? Yeah, there, there, there's a number of, number of things I, I believe that provide value, but I'll give you a good example. Uh, and, you know, myself, I tend to look at its value to the entire project team. I may be working uh, under, uh, under the architect's contract. Uh, in many cases, we would. But uh, everybody, everyone on that team, we're providing value to everyone on that project team. Um, and and uh, so the value we provide, uh, one example would be um, on a project, any, any type of building project, um, the budgets are set at some point during the design process, not midpoint of design development. And uh, if we're there uh, and, and, and we're able to vet that, we can help them to avoid change orders. And, and this is, construction is very much about change orders, uh, not just in cladding and facades, but you know, the, the entire project. So, it, but in our arena, which is you know, the enclosure part, that's a very significant part of a building project. 
and to have change orders in there because the, the design was not vetted, uh, you know, the owner ends up with quite a bit of heartache there, you know, uh, financial heartache, right? So uh, that's like one example of value that we would provide that the avoidance of, and we're aimed at avoiding is to the best we can, but we're really good at this, avoiding that and getting it out on the table before a budget gets set before the owner's in love with the construction manager's budget. Um, and, and so, and, and there are times when we're called in late in the game and budgets have already been set. And I can tell you, there's a lot of, you know, pain because we bring out, uh, we bring up reasons why, well, you should avoid that and here's why, but now there's a cost associated with that and budgets are already set. So that's just but one example. Uh, another example would be to vet the design the value in that is, again, it's avoidance of, you know, with our experience and the amount of things that we've seen, the testing and the forensic work, um, we've learned a lot about what to avoid or how to sidestep certain issues uh, or, or at least bring it to everyone's awareness of, you know, well, this could potentially be. So that's, and there's a lot of value in that because again, you're probably back to a change order or you're back to the owner, the owner's loss of building use because you've got problems once the building is occupied. Hmm. Those are just two examples, but I, I could probably think of more, but those are uh, probably the biggest value that we provide. Yeah, no, we can, we can continue on that. Paul, what about you? You got any other perspectives on that? What, you know, the value of a building envelope consulting to a project? I see it as a, uh, Similar to say you uh, buy something in the store and they ask, they offer you the extended warranty, and um, so it's similar to that. You know, um, it's an added cost. It does it. It's that or it's an insurance, um, avoiding risk and the risks like Mark mentioned are to your budget, to your schedule, um, or to the the quality of the work that's in place, and it's always a balancing act. And sometimes people say you can, of those three things, you can only pick two <laughs> and eventually the other one falls off the table uh, for one reason or another. Um, so I think that's the value we add, you know, we're not adding to the, anything physical to the, to the, uh, to the product. It's a, uh, an insurance. Mark mentioned cost. Uh, yeah, well, there, yeah, and you bring that up, John. I mean, there's other value too. In other words, we, we come up, we're able to come up with ideas oftentimes where there's, there's a cost savings or it's another consideration for cost savings. That's, that's value. I should have brought that up, but um, yeah. that's, that's something that we look at very closely is, is to, uh, you know, the economics. And uh, so, do you, do you believe um, when you mentioned cost, is it you guys experience our, our curtain wall and cladding costs generally misrepresented or short-sighted without a consultant? Do you think that a consultant provides a more realistic viewpoint there or does it just depend on the experience of the project team? Um, you know, the projects often start 
on a cocktail napkin. Somebody's got a sketch or an idea and there's a pro forma income statement and everyone's kind of figured out, hey, we want to do this project. This is before a consultant is involved. And budget numbers have already been assigned to get to this pro forma income statement, right? Um, now, when we come in and we see, we look at the pricing that they may have, and it's early in the game, they haven't written contracts yet. Um, and I'll give you an example. I came into a tower project, 72 story tower project, and there was a huge bust on what the developer team had been carrying for the enclosure budget. It was a huge bust and uh, enough to stop the project. And they had already had, they're already in, uh, they're past concept design and they're early, early in the early uh, uh, stages of design development is when we got involved. We started looking at numbers. Um, so there's oftentimes these numbers are put together without, we're absent, <laughs> we're not there, right? Um, and sometimes they're accurate. If it's Heinz or somebody like that, you know, it's, it's based on the many projects that they've done. Um, if it's a newer developer, the prices are generally based on a, maybe a smaller scale project that they did. You know, incidentally, you know, we, we generally get involved in larger projects. The smaller projects, they don't tend to, you know, have the uh, budgets that would support consultants. And, and the designs are probably a little bit simpler in most cases. Not always true. Uh, so on these bigger projects, though, uh, you know, to get the wheels in motion and have an architect on board and someone's already gone through the financial picture, you know, to see if this is a go or no go mm-hmm. kind of thing. So. Um, yeah. I, I think I identified the, you know, the budgets, some people, sometimes it's not about the budget. Sometimes, you know, if we're working for an architect, it's for preserving the design and meeting their aesthetic goals as far as sight lines and quality products things um, and how to achieve that within the budget that's been set up or with minimal impact to the budget um, will, you know, often early and early in the project, we're specifying and having concepts included that make sure that those elements are included in the budget for the, for the more refined pricing afterwards, you know, in Mark's, kind of referring to situations where you're developing the initial budget and then there's constant revision. It seems, it seems constant revision to uh, budgeting as the design and as the project begins to be built. Um, so that's a, um, the, the value delivery also depends on the customer is what I'm saying. You know, the architect has some value they're looking for a general contractor is looking for value that's different than, you know, more performance of the, of the products installed. And then uh, later on the owner, you know, um, if they're, if it's an institution or a um, corporation building for their own occupancy, they have other uh, maintenance and, and things like that are more of the value they're looking for. Sounds like a lot of variables. You mentioned preserving the integrity of the design that sounds to me like it'd be pretty important to an architect to preserve the integrity of the design. Do you, absolutely. Do you find, I, I seems, seems like there's a significant opportunity to help architects 
preserve the integrity of the design while meeting what you just mentioned, Paul, the performance aspects of the wall. So I think you're, you sound like you're hitting on a subject where contractor wants to meet a specified performance criteria defined by the architect. So they have their quality, but now an owner, let's say they're a long-term owner, they've got to occupy for 25 years. Is, is there enough work done on the balance of preservation of design integrity, quality, and life cycle cost, like really looking at the long-term aspects to how the cladding performs for the occupants, for life safety, for mechanical. I mean, that's kind of a broad question, but you kind of hit on a holistic topic here. Yes, I, I think, you know, for example, one thing that always comes up is facade maintenance. For, for tall buildings and serviceability, and even for small buildings, how you're going to maintain those, uh, maintain the glass uh, gaskets and sealants, um, and the durability of the materials. If the you know paint finishes, uh, you know if you're using natural stones and the durability of the natural stones in the environment that you're in. Uh, so there's many aspects in that regard as well. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a, there's a lot of materials from what you just mentioned. Um, a lot of people don't think about natural stone and finishes as it applies to the facade and long-term performance. Uh, Mark, any comments on preserving design integrity and, and how that aligns with cost and long-term? Um, yes. Like when, 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 Options are being considered to reduce costs, okay? And and then our job is, you know, is to explain to everyone in simple terms, uh, what that what does that mean? Uh, well, that type of roof, the one that you started with, that's that's a 20-year deal. Uh, this one that you're gonna save a ton of money on, it's about a 10-year deal. Hmm. But we try to put that, we don't try, we actually do put that into context so that an owner can make some decisions now. Uh, because the owner is going to be spending the money here. And is it okay with the owner? Well, I'm going to have to go out and maintain that 10 years from now. In some cases, they've been okay with that. So as long as you give them the intel by which they can make a decision, hmm. and that's really, that's what you're doing. You're saying, well, and I'm not going to make the decision at the end of the day. I just have to tell everyone in the room, well, here's what that means. Or here's what it could mean, that kind of thing. So... Uh, you know, preserving the design, if if the idea at first was to have more longevity, which costs more money, um, if, uh, you know, if there are some financial constraints, and now you have to look at other things, as long as everyone is advised as to uh, the shortened cycle of maintenance, let's say, for instance, um, not being able to wash your windows, you know, <laughs> a project where they figured a roof car, you know, uh, and uh, now you're deep into the project and they're running out of money and we're not going to have a roof car now, but so you're not going to have, your glass is not going to be maintained. Um, and if you don't get out there and wash it, you know, two or three times a year, it's going to be a problem. Hmm. Um, so as long as everybody knows that and, and you tell them those things so that they can make decisions. Um, I don't know, did I answer your question? 
Yeah, I really like that, actually. I really like the the clarity that you guys are discussing about having the expertise to provide factual information by which an owner, an architect can make an informed decision as to Absolutely. integrity of the wall. That's, that's really great. I, I like the quantitative nature of that. Give, give me an idea. Let's shift for a second. So give me an idea of the totality, but like, let's just go quick hit, like the totality of the kind of services a building envelope consultant provides, and then maybe we can get into which ones are most important or contextually, depending on the nature of the assignment, which ones are most important. So Paul, like what is Paul and Mark, just let's run through. What does a building envelope consultant do? What kind of things do they physically perform in their services? So I guess the first, the first aspect that we are looking at is the structural integrity. Then, um, water tightness, I'd say, um, and air constructability. Constructability. Yes. Constructability. And constructability to achieve that, to achieve the building, um, durability, acoustics, um, <laughs> impacts, and, you know, uh, the, the, the phenomenon, uh, um, let's say it's resiliency, how it's going to behave and, uh, seismic and wind events and sometimes terrors events and, um, and, and crime and, and crime, um, and, uh, energy, energy goals. It's becoming more about those. I mean, when, when you build a building, you know, you're established the order of the importance of those things. And, and, uh, the budget also establishes the order of those important things, but, um, you know, you need to have, Tight, healthy buildings. Okay. Anything to add to that, Mark? Um, we look into material sourcing. Um, you know, in other words, what's reasonable for a specific project? What might not be reasonable? You know, what are the market conditions? Uh, you know, is is going offshore a good idea? And why might it not be? Or why might it be? You know, I mean, look at, we look at those things and, and, uh, uh, and we're able to bring case history to the table, you know, as far as um, we talk about like new startup operations that are making a tempered glass that they've never done that before. And, and now you've got a much higher potential for spontaneous breakage or things like that, you know. Um, so that's something that we usually consider is, you know, who, where, who are the potential suppliers here? Um, you know, what, what does that picture look like? Mm. And um, so that, that's another part of it as well. I think the building science aspect has become a lot more important. You know, when I first got into this science schmangance, I guess, you know, I mean, look, back in, back in the early days, and I started working on this in the early 80s, and, you know, when you had some condensation formation on a, on a wall or a window or something like that, and we get you clean it up. <laughs> you know, people treated it differently because we had plate glass. We didn't have IGUs. I mean, gosh, the IGUs didn't really start to emerge until like the middle '80s, and they really weren't perfected yet. Um, and so, people just kind of dealt with that. But what we weren't seeing was the condensation that was forming inside of the opaque wall. Hmm. We could see it on the glass in the frame. 
and we could deal with that. Um, what we weren't seeing was the stuff that was going on inside of these opaque walls. And by the time you did see it, by the time it did manifest itself, it was a huge problem. Hmm. The entire walls had to be torn off of buildings, right? So the building science has become much more important. Uh, it's, it's kind of front and center. And when we look at these projects and, and uh, you know, John, you've been on some of these with me. We were on a, a high rise in Florida and the shadow boxes were all filled like aquarium tanks, right? Yeah, they looked because like fish tanks. High vapor drive at night and, and they just, they filled up, right? So, but um, that was an example of where no one looked at those building science aspects because it was thought, you know, I, I think years ago, I kind of thought the same way. It's like, well, geez, that's, that's down south. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you really do. Just, we didn't know it back then. You just, you learn over the years that, hmm. by golly, it is important, right? Well, that, that's, that's an insightful comment. A lot of people don't think about that. They're always thinking of, well, it's going to be need to be warm inside when it's cold outside. And what does that look like? How does that manifest? And in the warm tropical climates, you have the opposite, right? You've got vapor drive from the outside. You've got dry, cool inside and moist and warm outside. Boy, you're right. You don't Yeah, we used to think, I mean, years ago, John, you remember Skip the Bridge and things like that. But years ago, we thought, well, my goodness, if a project is down south, you didn't need thermal breaks. Yeah. Boy, were we wrong. Right. We were way wrong. Cooling costs are, are double of heating costs. And, you know, so you got all this fenestration on the building and it's not thermally broken. And you've got all these other problems going on. So, yeah, we, we've learned. I remember when I first saw an Ensinger uh, advertisement back in the early 80s. And I looked at that and I it was in Glass Magazine or something. And I looked at it and said, well, that looks great. But where are we going to use that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, you know, we, we just weren't on that page here, you know. And uh, hmm. so that, that, a lot of that goes to the building science aspects are so much more important today. Yeah. And, that, uh, you know, hospital environments, you know, on the big one I worked on in Chicago, that 18 story bed tower, um, you know, they're tearing out interior, an operating hospital here and they have to tear out the interior walls and, you know, and hospitals do run a higher humidity, you know, for patient uh, wellness, I guess, and, and so forth. And um, never used to think about things like that years ago. And, uh, we're thinking about it a lot now. I like that. That's that's really well stated. We could spend the rest of the time talking about the progression of building science. I really like the comment about case history as well. I think that's an, it just sounds to me that that's an underrated, understated aspect that I, I rarely hear coming from outside of the consulting camp, case history. Um, well said. You know, we when I talked with Helen Sanders, she said, you know, on the one hand, um, how, how do I develop this? You know, it's hard to develop case history without technologies being approved to move forward, accelerated testing on technologies, but uh, that case history is very well stated. Let's, let's keep going on this. So you guys have mentioned a lot of things. You mentioned structural integrity, case history, building science. I think I heard air tightness, water, tightness, water integrity, um, uh, terrorist, blast, seismic. Um, that's a lot of stuff. What's the, what's the typical cost of a high-performance 
glazed curtain wall as it relates to the percentage of construction? What are we around 20 or 25 or 30% of the cost of the job? What, what's you guys experience? You could easily be in that range. Yeah, you could easily be in that range. Yeah. Um, on, the, yeah. On, the types of projects, on the types of projects that we work on, yes. You know, um, you know, on, let's just say, a run-of-the-mill retail or something like Of course not. You know, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's a exterior cladding that's not really intended to last that long because the fashions are all going to change. And uh, but the types of projects we work on, that's a pretty accurate statement, I think. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Paul? Anything to add there? Um, I think it's hard uh, to gauge because, you know, I think we are in the realm of core and shell development. So you're building the core and the shell, so that amount of proportion of the cost of construction is higher because you're building the core and the shell. So <laughs> in theory, it's 50% uh, or more when you do that style of construction. And then um, the interior finishes come after. And uh, so, and then conversely, uh, we're working on museums or laboratory space or hospitals where the dollar per square foot is extremely high. And uh, that's, and then, you know, proportionally it's less, but on the other hand, uh, the risk of those other, you know, the, the shell affects everything because it keeps it warm, dry, and safe from outside threats. So all that other construction is uh, at jeopardy potentially if there's a failure of the, of the building envelope. So it's, re it's really the highest risk component of the entire building project. Um, 70% of litigation cases, uh, construction litigation cases, involve the enclosure. Wow. That's a real number, 70%. Um, and, you know, think about it. Structural engineering for the building structure is generally quite conservative, and I don't have a problem with that. We want buildings falling down out there, right? And so, um, and, and that type of construction, for the most part, is more conventional. It's either poured concrete, reinforced concrete, structural steel, you know, post-tension, whatever, but generally don't have as many problems with that. You do, but they're, they're not, they're part of the 30% over there. And, and, and that also includes mechanical systems, hmm. well, the 30% part, right? Structures is a very small part of that, I think. And, and uh, so other disciplines uh, aren't as high of a risk as, as the building enclosure. Hmm. And, uh, you know, once you open those floodgates, once, once your building enclosure is not performing properly, and what kind of problems that's causing, it just kind of snowballs from there, John. So yeah, it's not, you know, it's not so much, in my opinion, it's not so much what it costs you to begin with. It's a potential cost later on. You know, these projects right. that we work on where they've got to go in now, we've done forensic work and they've got to go in now and they've essentially got to rebuild the entire cladding or building enclosure opaque walls, fenestrations, the whole bit, uh, you know, that's three to four times the cost of a new construction. Mm -hmm. This is an occupied building. And so you're not, you yeah. know, just bringing the trucks up to a, a, a structure that's just been built and, and then cladding it. <laughs> now you've got an operating building. Uh, there's people in it and uh, they're using it. So th those costs are very high. And, yeah. you know, this is the 70% the, the part though, and that number used to be smaller. And it's only in recent years that we found out that that number is really 70%. Mm. 
That's another whole topic. That's a fast through our, our workings with the American Bar Association and, and the feedback that we've gotten from law firms that focus on that kind of work. It's a fascinating um, metric. And uh, I know you guys and we are involved in the construction litigation um, group we presented at the American Bar Association. Um, what about testing then? Uh, we haven't talked much about that. So mock-up testing, field testing. Um, you know, I, I work on projects with you guys sometimes and other times on the design and engineering side. And I, I hear people say, well, you know what, we're going to waive the performance mock-up on this job. We think we can get away without that. Or, well, we don't need to do that much field testing. What's your guys' opinion on the value of testing? Paul? Well, it's, it's very valuable and valuable enough to become code required, you know? So I think each um, iteration of the code, there's more building envelope testing that's required. Um, and, and I'd say any of the uh, building performance scorecards used are including points for um, either just a flat out requirement for testing, like, like a passive house uh, building has to be built very airtight and high thermal value and they test to verify that it's built um, with lead. There's um, credits given, you know, you earn points for testing and commissioning uh, of the building. Um, Pre-construction testing, uh, you know, if there's systems, if they're using off the shelf systems and um, proven to work, um, you really, can effectively do an on-site mock-up uh, that's uh, for coordination of the trades that are going to be installing those. I think that's a very invaluable uh, process. And then field testing to verify, you know, quality control, quality assurance testing. But you're really limited on the the types of tests you can do in that case because you don't want to do damage to the to the new built product. Um, so you can really put a, a wall assembly or a roof assembly or, or um, the combination of those through the paces when you do something separate from the building. You can, you can take it to failure and know what to expect and see how to fix it as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. How about you, Mark? Any other comments? Uh, yeah. The... the, the uh... The things that are often missed by not doing a performance mock-up test at a lab, you know, on a larger, sophisticated design, you know, building and planning, let's say, um, most of the off-the-shelf products, it's the the very basic test. Uh, it might be like four steps, right? Six at the most. A rigorous testing is 28 steps, maybe 32 steps. So now you're you're taking the system through expansion and contraction. You're doing cycles of expansion and contraction, and then you're testing it again. Uh, there's a number of things you're doing. You're doing a seismic movement, and then you're testing it again, right? Uh, so those things are all skipped with your quantity, your 1,600 walls and things like that. And so if you have a, a larger building and, and a more sophisticated design, uh, taking something that just soft the shelf product, it's probably not going to be, you're going to probably find things out on the project that are going to surprise you. 
Um, so we think there's a lot of value in it. Not always necessary because let's say, for instance, if you have a large producer, um, one of the largest in the country, and they have their, their basis unitized curtain wall system, which they kind of, and it's been tested very thoroughly, and, and they really stick to those principles, you know, the, the mating principles and the gasketing and all the, all the things that make that system function. And then they just simply change the aesthetic parts. Maybe it's a deeper cap on the front or, uh, you know, the minor changes that really don't affect the way the system's going to perform. And so those aren't very risky in my opinion. Mm-hmm. The ones that are risky though are the systems that have never been tested for, like I say, the 28 or 32 steps. And then the architects got these huge tribs and, you know, big panels and stuff that was never tested before. And now you're out somewhere and, and uh, you know, in the real world and all these things are being subjected to the degrading elements. And now you start having leaks. Hmm. Yeah. Because seals are pulling apart. It wasn't, wasn't tested for that. So uh, we've, we found a, in recent years, we've promoted and found a lot of value in doing field mock-ups, they're usually not on the building. They're usually on a chamber on the ground, serves a couple of purposes. Because usually you have with the opaque walls that are adjacent to fenestration and so on and so forth, you usually have five or six different trade contractors involved in this process. And each one is performing a critical step, but not really paying much attention to what the other guy's doing or uh, that gray area transition over there, well, that's by others on everybody's drawings, right? Right. And uh, so we'll get them to build that in the field with those six trade contractors. And oftentimes we'll find that, oh, geez, we have a sequencing problem here. We can't really do this the way we thought. So it allows for a course correction there. And then we also find out that, oh, geez, we really can't seal that the way we thought we could, right? So Bottom line is, by the time you end up getting to the project and putting the cladding on the project, you've been through this, and it's a real-world example of what's going to be on that building. Now, it's, it's not going to have all the seismic tests. You know, there's a number of things you really can't do in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, those things can be looked at more in general, though, as far as, you know, is there enough accommodation for movement? Uh, you know, and those are more engineering things, I think, you know, in my opinion. So... That's that's something that's occurring more often, and and uh, on some projects it's been kind of a tough sell going in. But then the owner says, you know, I think I want to do that. And then going through the process, everybody learns along the way. Oh my goodness, we got to we have to change up here. We have to make a course correction. Hmm. So it's it's probably there's some benefits to that. Against or uh, there's some benefits there that you might not necessarily necessarily see at a performance lab mm-hmm. unless you're doing if you're going to build a frankenstein mock-up at the performance lab mm-hmm. um, which it does happen but not that often so i think that that's probably going to become more in my opinion that's going to become more common than performance lab testing for projects and, and i think i think uh technology you know there's there's going to be technological breakthroughs and things that also need to be vetted and, and applying if you have a typical you know off the shelf typical curtain wall system there's there's going to be augmentations to it like uh, uh, 
I was just thinking like uh, automated windows opening and closing. And, you know, um, there's uh, glass, you know, glass technologies changing. And so there's, there's always going to be, you know, we're never, the product's never been used enough on, you know, it's hard to say that there's a product out there that's been used for 20 years and hasn't changed in the um, same way. Yeah. It's always, there's always a, a little tweak yeah. that, uh, to make it better. And I think uh, as we come into smart home technology and smart glass and things like that, we're going to have more, uh, more need for, for testing. And, and I think the product will be better too. You know, I think it, um, some of the, some of the technology is going to eliminate some of the variability of, of, uh, of the products of old that boy those are you, you guys really got my brain working I, I think we should do we won't have time today but i think we should do i'll pull the audience but i think we do maybe some 15 or 30 minute like lunch like lunch break we could do one on opaque walls and how to handle condensation we can do one on testing um what what those steps look like um you know, I'm reminded as you guys are talking how some of the specifications, I know we advocate this a lot of times, depending on the complexity of the job on, you know, an exterior wall subcontractor, an EWSC, give me one person, one entity that's responsible for the entirety of the exterior cladding. I don't care how many subs they have, right? Because Mark, you just mentioned, maybe that individual component is fine, but now what about the transition area by others? Sure. The owner has to, that the occupants have to deal with that cold air coming through or that water leaking in or whatever wonkiness is involved, right? So that's that's some good stuff. Um, I want to move on to the next topic. So as you guys are talking, are there any problems? If this isn't, if, if the answer is no, it's fine. But are there any problems that you're, so I know you guys are engaged in forensic work you and we get called in by an attorney or by an insurer or by an owner to say, hey, there's a problem with my cladding or there's a leak in my building. Are there any trends or, or problems that you see repeat kind of continually or does it just vary widely depending on the context? I've seen a lot of variation. I've, I haven't seen you know, it's, there's always a, a water, you know, that's, that's the, the big red, red flag, but, you know, we've seen uh, pieces falling off, um, you know, as buildings are aging and uh, adhesives are letting loose. So there's, you know, just the, the things that happen immediately and then the things that happen in long term and the, the building stock of high rises is aging. So things are going wrong and maintenance has been delayed. So there's uh, usually more than one thing <laughs> on, a, on a project, you know, uh, that's, you know, it's leaking water. Yeah. But why is it leaking water? Is it the sealants or has something, has there been uh, a building movement or something that's caused some deformations and uh, that, that need to be addressed. So I, I can't say that there's one thing. So you've seen a broad range, but you mentioned water is a fairly common aspect to that. How about you, Mark? Same thing? Yeah, water, whether it's, you know, liquid water or it's through, you know, condensation formation. Uh, or, you know, we've had the 
project with the icing formations that you know 300 pound widow makers uh and again that was that was down to how the cladding was designed and, and uh, the roofing being part of the cladding system and, and how it met the other so yeah those are common i've, I've found that like when we're in a really good business cycle uh, i see a lot of repeat problems because you have a lot of companies that's well i can do that too and they've never done it before and God love them. I mean, they're trying to get a job and, you know, do some work, but so when times are good and everybody's spread pretty thin, I see a lot more problems where you have folks that are doing work that they really don't have the experience doing, or it's an experienced firm, but they're hiring other crews now to fill gaps. And those crews aren't, are not their A teams or their B teams. It's, you know, it's who they could find kind of thing. So I, I see a lot of that. And, um, and then the other thing is, um, even with some of the older firms, you know, I'm, I'm in the field looking at a project that's going in, we're doing a field observation, which, you know, periodic field observations to see what the quality of the work looks like. Is, uh, is it apparent that this is gonna meet the spec or not? Or, uh, and I, I noticed all these sill tracks, they have no end dams. And I said, geez, where's the end dams? This is gonna be your glazer. I've never used those before. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know it's a glass shop so we're not talking about one of the big you know the bigger contractors right but and i said well you know you've been doing it wrong for 30 years i said where's your installation man he said well, i don't have one i said well i have one in the truck let me get it oh i love that <laughs> and so I, I i showed him the page i said these are the end dams right here that the manufacturer wants you to use because you get water in here and it's just going to run over the end right so some of it some of it is when the when the market gets you know real busy um, and then some of it is, it's again, people putting stuff in and they're not reading the instructions. Um, Those pesky instruction manuals, right? Well, yeah. And, you know, so you, you know, I'm, I'm in the field on another, another project that's like a, a 20 story hospital building. And, and um, um, I go to the uh, sort of the shanty area where the glazing contractors all set up over there and, what where's your drawings you're using? He's got a set of drawings and they're like five versions too old. <laughs> There's been a lot of changes. And they're working off drawings that aren't, you know. Mm -hmm. He's working off the drawings that somebody gave him. Uh, you know, so I see a lot of it. So yeah, it's not just not wanting to read the instruction manuals, but sometimes the paperwork that they're given is not what they really should have. Yeah. Right. So you guys have thrown out two things that for the benefit of our audience. Um, one is the word, that's the term IGU, and one is the term NDAM. So, Paul, can I would like you to explain to our audience what an IGU is. And, Mark, I would like you to explain what an NDAM is. What does that mean, Paul? IGU stands for insulating glass unit. And it is the... Uh, state-of-the-art for glass that goes into buildings. It has uh, outer pane of glass and an inner pane of glass, sometimes an intermediate in between those two panes. They're separated by a spacer. The space between is sealed, and it can be filled with uh, normal air. It can be filled with some more uh, noble gases, which reduce the heat, uh, the heat transfer through through that airspace or 
soon to be, well, current uh, state or best is a vacuum space where there's uh, the air has been. Or vacuum, yeah, or vacuum. Right. So those are the insulating glass unit, and then that glass unit is put into your window frame. So um, okay, depending on the complexity and expense of the wall, you know, if you have the home homeowner windows at Home Depot up to, uh, you know, triple glazed and with the uh, layers of acoustic or a uh, 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 a poly a PVB inner layer, a plastic inner layer to add strength and, and uh, break resistance and impact resistance to the glass. Great. Mark, thanks, Paul. Mark, what's an in-dam? In-dam, it's pretty simple. I mean, any, any type of wall system, whether it's a glass and aluminum fenestration or if it's an opaque wall of some sort, but, uh, for instance, on a brick veneer cladding, there's a cavity behind the brick that's there to manage water because water's going to get through the brick. And it's only going to get worse with time because the border is going to crack. It's going to start to crack a little bit here and there. So there'll be separation. So that's a wall that's set up to manage water. And there's a through wall flashing. And at the ends of that flashing, you have to either turn the ends up or something so that it guides the water out of the building. Hmm. If you don't do that, the water will just fall back into the building. Right. So the same is true of like a fenestration system. Uh, if you have the bottom element, which is usually a sill or, or a starter track or something like that, in the water management uh, concept, that's the water management part that's going to send the water out to the outside of the building. If you don't put it, if you don't cap the ends, your bathtub has got holes in it. So in other words, it's going to fill with water, it's just going to run off the ends and into the building. So an end dam is it's a way to plug the ends, whether it be a through wall flashing in a brick wall or whether it be on a uh, fenestration. Mm. It's a way to manage water, keep the water within a containment, and then that containment has weep holes to let the water out harmlessly to the outside of the building. Mm. I like that. I'm going to change my answer. That's, that's the thing you see the most. <laughs> that's the thing you What's see. What's that? <laughs> I'm going to change my earlier answer. I think end dams may be the thing we see the most. The most that are missing or that are in, incorrectly installed? Yes, both, yes. Missing. Well, the, you know, it's not just that, too. So, like, we used to weld those things on, you know, back in the day, John. Yeah. Uh, and I got, you know, you're shipping this stuff and it's being handled on the job site, uh, not with kid gloves. <laughs> you know, you've seen things on a job site that get pushed around and moved every which way, right? So, if you have something that's fragile, it's not going to withstand probably to the project site to begin with, but then once it's on the project site, what's going to happen? But so we used to weld those on, and boy, that worked really well. You'd almost have to have a sledgehammer to get those end dams off. Uh, well, then there was a cheaper, faster way of doing it. We used screw splines through the extrusion. Uh, that works really well. Well, then folks got the idea, well, I can just silicone these on. Well, more times than not, they fall off. <laughs> they're gone they're yeah. not on the part any longer right so part of it is well we're trying to figure out how to do this cheaper but by doing that you've you've taken uh you know it's not such a conservative design anymore well you you both bring up a really good point here and i, I just want to emphasize this for a second maybe it's something people don't think of 
Mark, you mentioned water management and you guys are talking about water containment. And a lot of folks may be thinking, geez, I thought you, you put the wall up, the water hits it and it falls to the outside. But what you're saying implies that is, is it a question of if or when water will go through the wall? So it's going to go through. Water. It's going to go through. Every window has every window has weep holes. Every curtain wall has weep holes. The bottom of a, a brick veneer wall that you know with the through wall flat, you've got weeps. The brick wall, you've got to let the water out. Water is going to get in. So the gasket, you know, on day one, boy, it's really pretty. It's fresh. It's new. It's um, it's kind of like the car you bought five years ago. It's not the same car now. It's five years later, right? Things wear out. So the gaskets uh, will initially take some amount of water but when there's a pressure difference between the inside and the outside of the building in a driving rain, right? But as the gasket gets older, it gets worse because the gas, it, it, it shrinks, right? So the amount of water that's coming through increases with the age of the element. And the same thing applies to an opaque wall in many cases. So, uh, and then the other thing too is that only on a drawing can a sealant joint be perfect. Mm. These are all installed by humans in the field. Uh, people make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Maybe they didn't pre-clean this over here, right? Or so you, you you have to have a way to manage water that's going to get through the system one way or the other. It's going to get through the system. You just have to have a water management system that will take care of that. You know, if it's designed properly, you can have a good product. And it's going to be a minimum of 20 years before you're looking at doing anything hmm. to it, okay? If it's done right. Um, the gaskets can age. But if you've got a really good, robust water management system, it doesn't matter. Hmm. That's good. Now, you know, 40 years down the road is a different story. <laughs> now the openings become too large. But, you know, eventually everything's going to need maintenance. You know that. So... We, we tend to look at things of, of, you know, that 20 to 30 year cycle. So you're really not going to be wanting to do any major work, you know, for a 20 to 30 year period. On a brick wall, that can be more like 100 years mm -hmm. if it's built correctly. Yeah, I like that. So water is going to get in whether early or late or in some event. That's really good. Water, we could, again, we could do a whole technical show on water management and water containment and how to move water in and out of the system. That's really good stuff. How about, um, you mentioned opaque. I just wanna make sure everybody understands opaque versus gla vision glazed areas. So with opaque, we're talking about panels, right? Panels, stone, spandrel glass, those kind of things. Yeah, something that you're just not gonna be able to see through. And it mostly, it, it, it uh, so in a fenestration system with an opaque glazing or spandrel glazing, so let's say hide a structural beam that's behind the curtain wall or something like that, you're still going to have a good water management system or, or you're going to have a very good prospects for, because you have the same water management system regardless of what kind of glass you put in. Uh, the opaque walls that, um, that I've been referring to mostly are the walls that are not glazed. So again, it would be like brick veneer, or it would be stone veneer, or it would be. Heck, yeah, you, see a lot of, you see a lot of EFAS out there, uh, architectural 
precast concrete, uh, tactile panels now, John. We have metal panels. There's all kinds of flavors of opaque walls. And uh, those opaque walls now have to have uh, continuous insulation on the outside. That's a That's been a code requirement for a couple of years now. Um, so, and those... Those are the walls that I mentioned earlier that if you do have a problem, you really can't see it until it's too late. Hmm. But by the time it emerges, the damage has been done. You probably got mold that's inside the wall and all kinds of other bad stuff. The rusty uh, cold form metal framing. Yeah. All corrupt. Interesting. Uh, so that's, that's been, that's been more problematic on the projects that I've worked on would be the opaque walls in and of themselves. I can't tell you how many brick veneer walls I've I've gone out and done the observations and they have no end dams on the flashings. Mm-hmm. And it's like the golden rule, right? But so, uh, and then where that opaque wall meets the fenestration, that's usually like no man's land. Everybody's drawing says that's by others. I'm going to start a company by the name of by others and I'm going to get all that work. <laughs> but yeah. It's sort of a gray area, right? Everybody points to that. So that's not mine. Both contractors. That's not mine, and and that's generally where you see problems because yeah. it's like a no man's land. Interesting. That's good. I like that value proposition. Uh, next, so it's wall you can't see through it, basically. Yeah, good. That's good to know. Um, one more topic uh, before we start to wrap up, Paul. How important? I know you're a guy who knows how to do therm assess the thermal capabilities of walls. How important is thermal analysis? And it's, uh, it's uh, important and, and it, increasing every every year it becomes more important. Um, and I mentioned uh, passive house. It's a, it's a big trend in, in construction. And uh, it's the concept of having a building that can, you know, if you, one of the, one of the measures that's kind of considered is how long the building would stay in an occupiable condition in the winter or in the summer. Yeah. So the, the ability of it to hold the air inside. So, I mean, that, uh, like I said before, that the, um, the, 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 the testing is, uh, testing is critical to that. And, and the part of that testing and the analysis that goes into the passive house scoring and the passive house concept is to perform thermal analysis that all the, all the details and, and those buildings are then modeled for energy loss and for air tightness and things that, that at a almost a hundred percent. So I think that, that that has raised the importance of thermal modeling um, greatly and, and the desire of uh, cities like New York and, and individuals and organizations to, to build to that standard or, simulate building to that standard if they would want to go for the formality of it. Um, and uh, the other piece is uh, there, I think, changes in how hospitals and museums are operated with minimum humidity requirements. Now um, they're building, we're building um, high, I, I call them high humidity environments where we're in, uh, inputting artificial humidity to maintain a 30 to 50% relative humidity indoors when the exterior is uh, below freezing and the, the humidity out there is, you know, 20%. 
uh, or or 10% if you bring that if you bring that air in and heat it. So um, those are it's it's a increasing importance. You know when you get into those high performance environments. Yeah, so I, it, it's it's a more and more uh, something that we recommend. And as we get into a project, there's an opportunity to there's a question that'll come up and we can answer that question. You know, is this, it looks like something that's going to be prone to condensation or we're going to have a thermal bridge here so we can use the tool to assess that. Yeah, that's really good. I, I know we've had experiences uh, where somebody said, Hey, I have a leak. Can you come check out the leak? But to Mark's earlier point, it was really condensation developed from within because of a thermal bridge or a thermal break, an issue regarding thermal problems, condensation, a vapor barrier, permeation, something. Um, you know, in terms of trends, it's interesting about thermal. You know, you guys have both been around long enough to have seen, you know, when I first started, it was like, yeah, we don't need an engineer, but the specs say we need one. And then jobs would come along and people would say, well, I know the spec says it needs PE calcs, but we don't need that. I'm like, okay. And now nobody questions that. Every job needs PE calcs. I, I think I've seen the last seven years, but more so really the last two or three, you know, it was, well, there's a thermal, thermal analysis requirement. We're going to waive that. We're going to waive that. We're going to waive that. And now it's, there's a higher percentage of jobs. Um, but I, I, don't, I still don't think it's enough, in my opinion. I, I think. Well, the other piece that's increasing the need is the, the code requiring it, uh, building code and energy efficiency code yeah. as being adopted more and more around the country and and around the, and becoming important around the world and adopted by other countries. So there's a need for there's some certification uh, or, or uh, statement of the performance, the thermal performance of the, of the, of a window or a wall and uh, meeting the energy use restrictions that are that are put in place so um you really i guess at this point with ibc and the uh, incorporation of the iec the uh, energy conservation code it's really required on every job and you either buy a product that's rated and you install it in the correct manner or if you deviate from that then you need to you need to have the analysis done yeah good Marketing. For us, the most of, for us for me the most uh, the highest benefit you know to to do therms just to show that the meet the window will meet the statutory requirements for U factor. Um, it's not as important as the dew points. Uh, the dew points we we can sit and do calcs for statutory requirements all day long. It doesn't tell you how the window is going to perform around its perimeter. Basically, it's a blended U-factor. So you take all the ugly thermal from the perimeter and you blend it with the glass, and by golly, you meet the statutory requirement. Mm. But you install the window in the field and you've got condensation problems. So, so the code doesn't really address, you know, yeah, I guess it's a start, but where I find the most value and the value I provide to architects to help them vet their designs is that we'll do some thermal analysis so that what the architect puts on paper has a reality, or it's, it's got, has a basis in reality. So the architect for the hospital wanted to put the psychiatric windows and mount those inside of the curtain wall frame. 
And I said, well, you're probably going to get condensation in that cavity there. Let's run the therms. And we did that, and we found out, absolutely, you're going to have a problem here, right? So that at the end of the day, what goes on in the architect's drawings has been vetted. Um, it's not the final design. That's, you know, that's going to go to someone else. But someone who's going to price the job, um, if they base their price on what the architect shows, and then they find out later on, well, geez, from a building science aspect that doesn't work, that's going to be a change order. And, and, and that is if somebody catches it. Mm -hmm. There might not be a consultant on the project. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe the first bad winter, someone says, oh, my gosh, what's going on here? Yeah. So um, the, the, the dew point part of the therm, though, I think provides the, the, the biggest value uh, because you can look at how these things behave in, a, in the localized, like where uh, fenestration meets an opaque wall, for instance, right? And you can look at that closely and say, okay, how's this going to perform? And... Uh, and then as consultants, we can generally take the architect's building design and we can sort of peg out, that's probably going to be a problem there. We can look for the weak links. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, field of wall details generally going to work just fine, uh, but we'll look at special uh, details that they have. And that's, that's usually where the dew point analysis is the most helpful. Yeah that they can put something on paper that's already been vetted. Yeah, no, that's really good. I, I agree. I've talked to Max Perlstein about this and, you know, the, you know, the NFRC compliance piece, the UVA compliance piece. And then if that's all you do, you're, you're missing the, you're missing the critical condensation issues around the non-typical details or even repetitive typical details, right? At a soffit or a parapet or a, or a, uh, inter sure. and with an adjacent wall. So that's really good. You know, guys, believe it or not, we have been at it more than an hour. I always say good. for the sake of our audience, although those who have insomnia may want to have us carry on longer because it might help them sleep. But uh, this has been really good. I, I'm, I'm excited about the conversation about uh, opaque walls, about condensation, about moisture, air and water integrity, structure, when to give it a consultant involved, when not. Um, I will make sure that the appropriate contact information is in our show notes. Um, so guys, thank you very much for spending your time today. I know you had a lot on your plate. Um, appreciate your time on the show. Well, thanks for having us. I appreciate it, John. So again, Mark Coolis, Paul Greasy with Wheaton Sprague. Um, Smart guys, experienced guys, appreciate your inputs. Um, this uh, is the end of our program, and we look forward to future programs. Gentlemen, thank you again. We will talk soon. Okay, goodbye.